Hi, and welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and as always, I'm here with Sarah, and our good friend Linda is with us today to finish her story about survival in an inhumane and unfair system. So our last episode uh, was part one of this series, so if you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do so. Um, This episode will continue on, coming from when Linda had been taken by police from her house and initially brought to hospital. Um, the, The story ended with her about to be transferred. So if you have not listened to that, please do. Please also note that this episode may be pretty triggering for some people. Um, It really goes to show that our mental health system has a long way to go. And I know many of us know that and have our own experiences, but please note that this may be triggering. And now to begin the story from where we left off. I finally like feel like myself because I'm wearing my own clothes and me and another girl were being transported to this new place. And I was thinking, oh man, look, I can like, I'm up on the top. I can, I can see windows. I can see sunlight. And I get out of the room, which I was changing in. And as soon as I open the door, I see a pile of chains on the floor. And I think, what? That's weird. And then my heart drops because those chains are meant for us to wear during transportation. Yeah, they're a medical restraint, probably a mechanical restraint. (laughs) I looked at the police officer and I asked her, like, why is this here? Like, what are we supposed to do with these? And I already knew the answer, but I needed to hear it. And she said, I'm sorry. It's just like, it's just, you know, how we do things. It's just for transportation, but don't worry. Like if you take small steps, then the ankle cuffs don't hurt as much. And I looked at the other girl that was being transported with me and we're both small. We're both female. We're both relatively young. And I look at her and I think, well, at least I have someone else. At least I'm not by myself. And I can be okay if I help her be okay. So I was like, okay, well, we're just going to probably laugh about this later. And I picked up the chains and they were heavy. And I put them around my ankles. They were tight and they did hurt no matter what. And it was connected to a chain that was around my waist. And it was connected to a chain that was around my handcuffs. And the only other time I'd seen another human being in such kind of like chains was like on TV when murderers are brought into like the courtroom and they like are serial killers and they like done something super terrible. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing Terrible. (laughs) Can I ask Linda, first of all, you're, you're incredibly good at storytelling. This is I'm just sitting here like, I feel like I'm watching a movie. Um, I'm so nervous, like sweating right now. <laughs> I'm sweating, but it's because it's very hot in here. Um, the At this point in time, are you still suicidal? No, not at okay. all. Yeah, okay. So that, I asked that just for the listeners that are like, why are you asking that question? Like, that's rude. I'm asking that because a lot of us How could suicidal. they justify that? Yeah, well, that, but also because of like the nature of BPD, a lot of us are like really suicidal for like a small period of time. And then, like, again, like you sleep or whatever, and then it goes away. So I'm just like, if we're like, what, three or four days later, if, from what I gather, and you haven't been exhibiting, you know, in self harm incidents or suicidality, like, what the fuck? Not only that, but it is so incredibly hard to do a an involuntary involuntary hold like that like it is very fucking hard they were pulling a lot of shit out for this well in in canada you would have to have two physicians you'd have to have a lot of like doctors involved in this yeah and i'm not hearing that as part of the story but of course like i'm not obviously i'm not actually there with you um but like after 48 hours there would have to be like a new revision of yeah the hold or that's yeah that's how ours is 24 48 72 and then they have to do like a court ordered two week and then a court ordered four week three three month or whatever yeah yeah Yeah, same here I also thought it was going to be different I've never experienced anything like this before and I will never go back (laughs) needless to say after all this happened and I eventually got out on the other side like all of my things were worse and not better yeah 
And I imagine the trauma for your partner was really high as well when he learned the yeah. experience for you. I, w- I just remember being so mad at him. Like, I'm honestly shocked you guys are still together after that. We're tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah, you are. Oh my God. Because cool. my BPD symptoms would have sent him packing so quick. Yeah, I mean, it just like makes me so angry and sad and like disgusted and ashamed and all of the things that we can call it a healthcare system but we're not letting people touch each, like touch each other within re- like hug hug another person talk to another person yeah. like wear clothes that resonate with them um not have to wear chains to get into a bus to i don't know like well, not maybe only- i'm being naive but i don't i feel like that would not happen here but this is how we and this is how we train our youth right like her boyfriend's been being trained since he was a little kid that if there's an emergency that's what you do is you call 911 so he thought yeah, he was true. doing totally. the right thing and that's and also, that's how we represent this no yeah, it's not his fault at all oh god no. no but that's what i'm saying is that the systems create this kind of abuse and it's so unacceptable i never felt so like dehumanized as when I saw that pile of chains and I don't think anything as dehumanizing has ever happened to me since then. But I always, I always thought, you know, like I look, I look okay. No one's going to perceive me as a threat. You know, I have, I have a huge amount of privilege and I'm used to that working, I guess. And it like, none of it, like none of it helped. Um, so yeah, taking baby steps in ankle shackles. I remember just thinking, it's okay. I'm not alone. I can take care of her. She's probably upset. Um, So we ride in the van and I asked the van driver, who is a female police officer, like, you know, like, why do you, why do you transport patients this way? Like, isn't there another way? And she's like, well, we used to just transport them without the chains, but some people try to run. And I think, God, like, I'm not going to run. Like, like I want to get away, but it's like a moving van. Like, what am I going to do? And she said her son went through the mental health system after a suicide attempt. And he tried to run while being transported. And basically, it was really bad for him. And as she spoke, she like humanized herself. So here's another character that is in, you know, has all the power. Um, and here I am trying to make myself less afraid of this terrifying situation by trying to appeal to her like humanity because we're both human, right? We're just in a different situations. And she said, well, you know, my son has been in and out of mental health systems for years. And part of the reason I became a police officer is so no one else's son has to. And I thought, oh man, like she's a human, you know, like she's in uniform and she's carrying a gun and she has the key to our handcuffs, but like she has a son and maybe she understands a bit of the pain that me and this other girl being transported is in and she doesn't want us to be in shackles, but that's just the way it is for some reason. So we got to where we were going, which we were were going to the only state-owned mental health hospital in my state. Um, So it wasn't privatized, which means that it didn't have any money. Um, And it was the only place that had to accept involuntary committed people. There are other places that are better run with more money, but you need money to get there. Sorry, question as a dumb Canadian. So... (laughs) Um, the private psych hospitals, or I'm assuming that's kind of where you're headed here. Um, obviously you have to pay for those, but then the publicly funded one, it's not publicly funded. It's just not privately owned. So you still have to pay some, that's where Medicaid, that's where Medicaid patients go because they don't have enough money to pay for the private and. Yeah. And it's, it's where, um, like long-term hospitalizations occur. So our private hospitals are like your average, like, um, 
Peace Health Southwest hospital that has like a birthing center and a, you know, cardiology wing and whatever has an emergency room that all the patients funnel through. And then they'll have a behavioral health unit where patients stay and like long-term court appointed hospitalizations occur at state run facilities, like six month, one year, but you still have to pay for that if you're involuntarily in a Mm -hmm. public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they bill, sorry guys, but they, they bill your insurance and the hospital gets paid different rates. So a private, but not everybody has insurance. Correct. Right. So non-insured patients will, the hospital will help them get on Medicaid. Okay. Um, or a and that covers funded. all of it? Not Maybe. all of no. it. So it's just as fucked as you think that it is. Okay. Yeah. And I hate, I hate to be the like Canadian that's like, oh, well that wouldn't happen here. But like, just the fact that like, first of all, I'm also American. So like my family's all in the States. The fact that you can involuntary, involuntarily admit someone and then make them pay is fucking crazy to me. Also, yeah. so are privatized hospitals and jails to me. But anyways, that's another conversation for another time. So that's insane. Sorry. But just for some context, Lori. So the state-run facilities, there could be people there who are there on PSRB, meaning that they can't be found like co- uh, cognitively intact enough to stand trial Criminal, for their yeah, offenses or, yeah. you know, like a... a 60 year old patient with schizophrenia that's been homeless for 30 years and has really profound functional limitations because of their severe mental illness. So I gather from this that because that's where you ended up, Linda, for whatever reason, the people that you're in there with are probably the people who have the least amount of social supports, the least amount of recovery potential. I don't really like that word, but you know what I mean? Like they they don't have the things to help them be okay at the end of the day. And they have the least trained clinicians. So a lot of times they will be like college students leading groups and right. Because that's where they're doing the free practicum. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sorry to ask that. (laughs) So to answer your question, Lori, um, some of the people I was in there with had good social groups. I was, I was in there with like a police officer, which was insane because she was like admitted because of mental health reasons, but she was in the same profession as the people that I was afraid of. It was weird. Um, so, but we also had people in, um, the place where I went that, um, were homeless and they were not there because of mental health reasons. They were there because they needed a roof and that was a roof for them. There were people there who didn't have a lot of money. There were people there. Most people there had tried to, um, had attempted suicide and, um, that's why they were there, but about like their social connections or their like, um, socioeconomic status. I think it was like a a mix of things, hard to tell when everyone's in a hospital room. (laughs) Totally. And I just want to say like, I, one of the things I love about the way that you're telling this story is um, the humanization of people, right? So like the, the cop that's a, her son went through the mental health system. And then the other cop who's in the mental health system, like if every, if anybody who has, who's listening to this, doesn't know about the Stanford prison experiment, please go Mm -hmm. look that up because like, that's exactly what you're talking about is like the power dynamics are kind of arbitrary essentially yeah. basically that's actually what i was just gonna say not too long ago is like hospitalization is the great equalizer right you could be in there with like bill gates's adult daughter and there's no difference between her and you in that moment if you're both in the same psych unit but is it there be in a better cycle i was gonna say like yeah here, I, here, I mean yeah. if you all end up in the same unit yes <laughs> yeah Sorry. Okay. So yeah. So now you're in the, you're in the new building. You're, well, I'm you're not now the, getting treatment I'm building, but I'm going through registration. Okay. The registration process is, I kid you not, we, so me and this girl is transported with our cuffs are off or chains are free. Woo. We're in the waiting room for five hours. We're sitting in plastic chairs for five hours waiting for who knows who to do what kind of paperwork they need to do. 
And while we're there, um, my transportation buddy has her father come in and I'm like, oh, good. You have a loving father. Like your father's willing to show up. Like, this is amazing. Like, I'm really glad um, that you have like a physical support person because I don't, (laughs) I am my own support person. Me and my humor, we can do it. Um, So basically five hours and then a nurse takes me to another room and asks me about my self-harm behaviors. And then she says, do you have, what was it? Or like, we don't, we don't offer any of this thing. And I was like, okay, why are you, why are you telling me this has nothing to do with what we're talking about? She was like, well, some people, some people like to self-harm with this thing. So we don't give it to them. And I was like, you can do what with what? And she was like, oh yeah, this is how, this is what people do. Like, and before she told me that I had no idea that this thing was possible. See, and, and this before, is why we don't talk about methods. Cause then you're going like, oh, well shit, how do I get that thing? Yeah. Right? Like, the whole time I'm like, why the fuck are you telling me this? You realize I'm in here because of a specific reason and you should not tell me this information. And now that I know, I know. Anyway, it was just like, holy cow, like this is not professional at all. Like if you had your wits about you, you would not tell someone who struggles with self-harm another way to do it. Basically, I was like, oh, okay, great information. I wish I didn't know that, but okay. Anyway, um, so my friend and I, my transportation buddy, have gotten pretty close. And then she leaves because she is in a youth ward because she's younger and I'm an adult ward because I'm older. Um, I think, well, I guess like super blurry now, but <laughs> eventually I'm hooked up with a psychotherapist, the old man, big title. And, um, I try to ask him like, how long am I going to be here? Like, what is this place? Like, do I have to pay for it? And like, in the back of my mind, I'm like really freaked out that it's like $2,000 a day because that's what someone told me it was. And I'm like, Oh, I'm here for like, I don't even know how long, if it's $2,000 a day, I cannot pay for it. I will be in debt when I get out, which of course is not a good thing to happen on your worst day ever or your worst. Like, yeah, ever, like I guess. that would, to me, that would make me more suicidal than when I went in. Yeah, but you can't show it. So the, yeah, the true, thing true, is true. you cannot show any signs of unwell or else you will stay longer. And if you stay longer, it will not be good for you. So I remember coming in and I'm <laughs> I'm wearing chacos, which are a very like hippy-dippy sandal thing um, that people in North Carolina wear sometimes. Hey, is there? I know, I know you know what I'm talking about. But they have straps on them, which is why I'm bringing them up. So someone in this new place I'm with tells me, oh man, like you got those strappy sandals and girl, don't let the nurse see them because like, they're going to cut them. I'm like, what? These shoes are like a hundred dollars. Why would they do that? They're like, oh, you don't get any straps or any strings in here. And I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, yeah, take out the string on your hoodie too. I'm like, I'm not going to do anything with the string on my hoodie or the straps on my sandals. But like, the reason I say this is because the people in the ward were watching out for me before they knew who I was more than the nurses were more than the mental health technicians were. I came in as like a new person and automatically were there like, Hey, so your shoes might be an issue. The string on your hoodie might be an issue. If you don't want anyone to see them, take them and put them in your bag and zip them and don't open it. This is how you survive. And I was like, wow. Okay, well, thanks for thanks for telling me. And basically my entire stay at the hospital was get up super early. Um and the entire day was like sitting in hotel room chairs and watching TV and we got a couple coloring pages. No therapeutic groups at all. There was a therapy group, but it consisted of a mental health technician reading um questions off of a worksheet and they were always the same questions like what did you learn uh are you thinking about self-harm or suicide and of course you always have to answer no because if you answer yes then you might stay longer um we were supposed to have two outside sessions a day and those outside sessions were supposed to be 15 minutes long and me in my regular life I am an outside 
person. Like I love camping. I love hiking. I love climbing. I like all these things. I like movements. I teach movement classes. I'm very fit. I'm very strong. Like I'm better when I'm moving. And this place did not let you move. And sometimes I was always like looking for the 15 minutes where I got to see sunlight. Right. And sometimes the mental health technicians and the nurses were too busy to let us outside. And if that happens, then we just did not go outside that day at all. And that like tore me up because I've never been inside for such a long period. And it was really like, like everything was bad. You know, no windows was bad. No outside time was bad. Like anyway, so I made a friend there, um, this other girl that was also, um, suffers from BPD and she was awesome. And I made friends with her because when we did get to go outside, we had like moldy balls to play with. And she was the only one that kicked around the ball with me. And I, we did cartwheels and handstands. And I told her about like the things that I like to do. And we talked about camping and we grew very close because we were the only active people. This person played soccer and I'm also active in my like everyday life. So we like played, <laughs> it was fun. Um, one time, so she was in there because she has an eating disorder that's like really advanced and it's like scary and has like wrecked her body one time she we came in from lunch and this girl like my best friend we talked we would talk in the ward like every day um she asked to go to the bathroom and the nurse says no you can't go to the bathroom because if you do you're gonna like throw up and you're here to get better so you can't do that and then my friend is like you know, like, like a really, I really, I like, I'm going to have a panic attack. Like I just really need to go to the bathroom. Like, can you please let me in? Like, I feel like I'm having a panic attack. And the nurse says like, no, you can't do that. Like if you're going to throw up, throw up on the floor for all I care. And so then my friend threw up on the floor and not because she wanted to, but because she was so anxious by that time, it just happened. And I felt so angry at that technician for not letting her go to the bathroom. And now there's like vomit on the floor of where we were in the common room where everyone was. She's on the floor, like sitting in the fetal position, like crying, trying to hold herself together. And um, like, I remember the technician saying like, you got to clean that up to like my friend. And there I am saying like, she can't even like, absolutely fucking not. She can't breathe right now. Like, no, like, no. And I, I remember getting up and getting paper towels and on my way over to the vomit, another person said, Hey, Linda, if you clean that up, you might stay here longer because you're like directly disobeying orders. And at that point, I'm like, Oh shit. I'm like, well, I don't care. Like, I I like this person and this is unfair. I don't care if I stay a couple days longer, a couple weeks longer, or whatever. So I use the paper towels to like pick up the vomit while she's like trying to get herself together and clean it up. And then she sees what I'm doing and she says, Oh, you don't have to do that. Like, you don't have to do that. Like, they specifically told us that only she could clean it up because it's her mess. And I was infuriated, but I was also really afraid because I didn't want to stay there longer. And so basically like, and it's also gross because it's vomit. (laughs) So I remember it soaking through the paper towels. I remember putting it in the trash can. And I remember thinking I need to get out of this place, but first I need to survive. And the next day I wake up. And surprise, surprise, I'm on my period. Yay, because I'm still female and that still happens. So I ask for like supplies, tabs, like um, tampons and pads. And the mental health technician says, we don't have any of those, but I mean, we got an adult diaper you can use. And I'm like, well. What? Did you report this hospital? I feel like this is reportable. So that's just like dehumanization of patients. It is. That's fucking You know what else? It doesn't work. Like it literally does not absorb the mess. So I remember waking up 
in this adult diaper that they gave me and thinking, well, this didn't work. Maybe I'll get another one. (laughs) So I did. Um, But just like everything that's happening to me is really dehumanizing. So my primary goal is to humanize the people around me so that I don't feel like that. Um, yeah, it was all like, it was all pretty terrible. I know this sounds like we're worst case scenario, but like, I mean, I honestly feel like, uh, I want to report the hospital. How long has that been? Has it been since I was there? Uh, like a year and some change. Okay. Yeah. But I'm I reviews of this hospital online and worse things have happened. Yeah. yeah but if you formal complaint though. Yeah. I'm going to contact the disability rights of North Carolina about this hospital because I'm a mandated reporter and this is totally unacceptable. And this is just totally unacceptable. And like, so for the listeners, this story obviously is like, yeah, like you were saying, sounds like worse. It is worst case scenario. Like that Again, I am appalled as somebody who works in the healthcare system. Yeah. Like we we call this healing because that's obviously not true. It's just survival. It's just yeah. like survive and get out as fast. But Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're not going to be able to survive yeah. if you can't survive, right? And like that's anyways, could go into a whole bunch of stuff right now. But A, we don't want this to deter people from getting help, right? So just right. important, important to say that like recovery is possible. There are treatment options that aren't this. And like, obviously the situation that you were in is like disgusting. And I really do think that we should do something to report it. Um, and then also while we're talking about reporting, like this is definitely a thing that um, I deal with at work a lot with um, racism in the healthcare system in Canada. And like, I don't know the system in the States, but like, it is really important to report things. And I mean, hell, Sarah, send them this episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, if we have your permission, obviously, but like, it's just, it's important for people to know these things because otherwise we're never going to make change. So like, we both like appreciate you sharing this so much because I'm sure this is not an easy thing to talk about. And it's, I'm sure it's not going to be an easy thing to listen to for a lot of people, but like, it's important that we understand that like, this is not a healing system. No. This sounds like a prison to me. I mean, yeah. I our our inmates in like prison get better treatment than this. In some of them. It it felt like a prison, but I've never been to prison, so I can't like compare, but I mean, you can't you can't do anything like all of the doors have special handles and you cannot open a door unless a door, unless a mental health technician or a nurse opens a door for you. So you don't even have autonomy to open and close doors and go where you want. Um, I remember my first roommate in this hospital ward, um, had like, um, like a stomach surgery before she was admitted. And she was on a strict, like liquid food diet because it was still healing. And one morning she woke up in intense pain. And I knew that she woke up because I could hear her like moaning and like clutching her stomach. And she said that she'd been eating the hospital food, which was not a liquid diet. It was just normal food for her entire stay. And she thought that like stitches were coming out. She thought that something was like wrong with her stomach. And she said, Oh man, I told them, I told them that I had the surgery and I told them that I needed liquid diet. And like, I don't really think that they listened and I thought it would be okay, but like, I'm in really intense pain. And I was afraid because she, there was pain on her face and she was a strong lady And I, so I go get the mental health technician. I'm like, my roommate's in pain. Like, I really think she needs help. Something's wrong with her stomach. Like, can you please help her? And then the, 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 you know, mental health technician says, okay. And walks down there super slow. And the whole time I'm like, well, I really think something is wrong. Like my roommate's in a lot of pain. She's walking slow. She gets there and she's like, oh yeah, that looks bad. Let me get the nurse. And she walks back up to the desk and the nurse walks back down and the nurse is like, okay, what do we do? And then my roommate was able to be taken care of. And I think like she left a couple days later because she was like dismissed from 
that place, but just like, like stories about people having the wrong medications. And like, like I said, like the outside time kind of being like glossed over if they had too much work to do, we weren't allowed to be like outside. And I remember like on the schedule, it said that there was like a recreation therapist. And I thought, yeah, we're going to play softball or volleyball or karate, or we're going to learn cartwheels or like, it's going to be fun. And then recreation day came and we sat on our butts like we've been doing for 24 hours and we played a card game and no one was interested and there was no physical motion and I remember thinking well not even the recreation is recreation so all we do is we watch tv and we color and we have group therapy but it's like not helpful and the first night that I was there we watched tv and the movie was get out which was about um, not like the mental health system, but if you've never seen Get Out, it has like um, psychotherapy in it with like they they put someone like under a like a psychotherapy spell or something. And then they like um, it's like a horror movie, basically. And we were watching it while in a psych ward, while people were like like in a mental health arena, we're watching a movie that's about the horror of a mental health technician kind of gone wrong. It was, it was great fun. Yeah. Totally great movie for the first night. Not. Yeah. I don't want to like say too much more. There's something, there's stuff that happened between my partner and I during that time, but I think I don't want to talk about that bit because it's not as interesting. It's like too personal, but basically I was really worried that each day that I was there was costing me money. And every time we got someone new in, like, I just remember thinking like how normal these people are. Like one of the guys was really quiet and I was like, oh, why are you here? And he was like, oh, I have, I have schizo, I'm like schizo erratic or schizo something. And I was like, wow. Schizo affective disorder. Schizo affective. Yeah. He was the coolest. Um, and I remember thinking, well, the only thing I've heard about schizo people is that they're crazy, but you don't seem crazy. But then again, here we all are in a mental health hospital. Who's crazy? I don't know. I remember doing like cartwheels down the hallway and the mental health technician is like, uh, you can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean? Like I literally teach classes on fitness in the real world. I could totally do this. And he was like, no, no, no. Because if you get hurt, we'll have to send you to the hospital and we don't want to send you to the hospital. So you can't get hurt. And I'm like, I'm not going to get hurt. And I was doing handstands and I was doing handstand push-ups and I was doing regular push-ups and I was doing like all the stuff. He was like, you have to stop or I will not, I will make you stop, but like, you have to stop. This is an order. And I'm like, I can't even like move, can't even like be myself. I can't even like express myself through movement, which is something I really like to do outside of like in normal life. So yeah. when did you get your BPD diagnosis? The psycho, psychiatrist um, sat down with me and he looked over my chart, like of the things that had happened to me. And he was like, well, how'd you end up here? And I kind of told him that I was fighting with my partner and I told him that I struggle with self-harm. And then he said, okay, well, I'm, I'm diagnosing you with, with this thing. And he wrote it down and he slid the paper over to me. And it said borderline personality disorder. And I thought, border? What am I on the borderline of? Like, what is what does that mean? Like, you don't know me. You sat down with me for five minutes. Like, you don't know me. This isn't right. Like, what even is this anyway? Like, what am I on the border of? And though he's like, well, I mean, I can print out like, you know, what it is for you. And so they printed it out and it had all the symptoms. And I'm like, well, I mean, oh, oh God. Oh my goodness. I think this is me. <laughs> yeah. That, that was a rude, that's a rude awakening for sure. You're like, oh shit. Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, yep. cool, I went down cool. the symptoms. I'm but, like, oh, yep. Fear of abandonment. Oh, yep. Don't like being alone. Self-harm struggles. Oh, yep. That's me. But mm. the fact that he like, A, didn't have the guts to tell you the diagnosis right. is kind of like fucked. And then also to like say, oh, I'll just print you off a sheet. Like, what if you didn't know how to read? Like, what if you had, like, what if your English was your second language or like, right. 
or you had questions like Jesus. Anyways, they had me sign. They had me read something out loud. And that was their, I asked later why. And they said, so that they know that I knew how to read, which is really weird to me. And I'm, because I thought like, who would know how to read, but you're right. Like if English was your second language or if like you, you don't live there, or if I don't know, something happened and you just never learned how to read. I don't know. They probably would have just told you what your diagnosis was, but I remember like, I, they should have done that anyway, though. That's like, that is how you tell people you don't slide them like you're doing a deal in like a movie. Like I'll give you a deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, mental health in my family is not a thing. And I grew up thinking that only the really strange people had mental health stuff. My family is um, immigrants. So um, like where my, where my parents are from is a kind of like old school, old culture place. One time I asked my parents, like, you know, are there only like, do they have any like pride festivals? Like where you're from, like the country where we're from. And my mom was like, oh, you mean like, for gay people? No, no, no. We don't have any gay people from where we're from. Like they don't exist there. And I thought, oh, really? That's an LOL if I've ever heard one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the very, very like old school, traditional, um, not from the state, not from the states, not like, you know, don't understand things. So I remember thinking there's no way I can have a diagnosis because only people that are super broken or like super like off the rails can have a diagnosis. And that can't be me because I'm normal. Like I'm normal. Everyone else is crazy. I'm not crazy. I can't be crazy. I just have this stuff, but it's totally like dealable. Like I can handle it. And then as it went on, like, I just, I just knew that like, ah, fuck, like, yeah, that's me. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I found out that I had. Do, do your parents know that you have BPD now? No. Okay. And that's intentional. That is necessary. Okay. Cool. Um, yes. They will never listen to this podcast and that's okay because I, I, I spent a lot of physical and emotional energy trying to figure out how to hide this from them because I, I see my parents quite often, like multiple times a week. And I had to make up some kind of story with why I was gone for a month plus because I was in a mental hospital. Um, My relationship with my parents is there's not a lot of like communication about stuff that's like um, less than fine. So um, it was better for me to not tell them. Um, And it's, remained that way since so they still don't know <laughs> do you think oh go ahead sir i was just going to ask like what your thoughts are about attachment related to your diagnosis of bpd if that is kind of your background and how you were raised it doesn't sound like a very affirming environment even if your parents are lovely people right my parents are lovely people and i love them to death and i think you know it's hard because like just like a police officer can seem threatening and have like, you know, a less than awesome role in society. Parents are also human. And if they make mistakes, it's not like they meant to, but it's not like those mistakes don't have repercussions. And my parents are awesome. And I love them to death so much. Um, But there's some things that I think were less than awesome about my childhood. And basically I've been told by multiple therapists that that's kind of how I develop BPD. Um, so I don't think, I don't think I'll ever tell them because I don't want to hurt them. You know, like how can you go to your parent and say, I have this, I have this really hard thing because you messed up somewhere like that would just hurt them so much. And I don't want to do that to them. And I don't think they would understand what it meant anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I thought we covered that a little bit in the episode that we did with my dad, where it's like, he did have a lot of resistance to it for that reason of like the, Oh, well, if there's something wrong with you, then that means there's something wrong with me. And, and we did get past it, but again, like that doesn't mean that everybody has to tell their parents 
you know, like, the, and that's the thing about the podcast that we try so hard to do is like, we try and have perspectives of everybody, right? Like we want to have people that are comfortable coming out. We want to have people that aren't comfortable coming out. We want to have, yeah. you know, everybody in the world, because it's important for us to make sure that it's not, we're not, Sarah and I are not the narrative of BPD, which. And I haven't even told my dad. Yeah, exactly. He knows, but it's not from my mouth. So does your, does your partner know? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> he was the first person that I told. Um, and he, he has a really, like, he loves researching stuff. Um, he's like a science and math nerd. I have no idea why it's fun. I'm not a science and math nerd at all. I'm more like, he calls me a jock. <laughs> I'm the jock and he's the nerd. Cause I like to like do pull-up contests with people and he likes to do equations. I don't know. It's stupid. But anyway, um, yeah, he knows. And he researched a lot about it so that when I came out of the hospital, um, he had a pretty good idea of like what it was. And it wasn't like a surprise because I had been exhibiting symptoms of EPD in a relationship and he didn't know what it was. We called it like the leaving problem, like where Linda gets sad when, when she has to leave at the end of the night and like different things, but it's way more, you know, it's characterized better by the diagnosis that I got than like the words we were attaching to different symptoms that we saw. So I asked my, I finally got out of the hospital. I um, asked my partner to like, oh, and at the end of my stay, the whole time I had requested to speak with the financial office to know how much I was going to be billed because I was so afraid that it was going to be like $20,000. And like, how do I get that money? Like my life is in shambles. I've had a horrific experience and now I'm in debt, right? So it's, it's terrible. So on my last day, the financial aid office calls me and says, what kind of insurance do you have? And so I told them and they were like, well, you must have good insurance because your bill is zero dollars. I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, like whatever insurance it is, get the same insurance next year. And I'm like, okay, that's awesome. awesome. Cool. So that was great. My partner did not feel comfortable picking me up from the hospital. So a friend did my partner and my roommate at the time did not feel comfortable with me coming back to our apartment. So when I got to our apartment, my bags were already packed. There was a backpack, there was a duffel bag full of my clothes. I did not know if my partner and I were still together. I did not know if I was being kicked out or if I have the rights to stay in a place that I pay for. I've been paying rent this whole time, which is really fucking hard if you don't have access to your phone, which I didn't. So I had to be like sneaky about it. You know, I had to be sneaky about sending messages to people. Like, of course, I didn't want my work to know where I was. I didn't want my parents to know where I was. So I still had to communicate, but like they take away your phone in this place along with everything else. So I had worked really hard to try to like appear as everything was normal. I was just sick for a month and some change. So my bags were packed, my heart sunk. And the friend who had taken me from the hospital said, well, where are we going to go? And I said, I don't know. I might just sleep in my car again. And she said, well, that's not a great place to sleep your first night out. Why don't we go somewhere else? Um, oh, like actually when I left the building, the hospital building, that was the first time that I had seen like such a broad expanse of sky. And I remember thinking like, the sky is huge. Like, have you ever looked up and seen how big the sky was? And by the time I got out, I hadn't eaten anything in two weeks because I was like really anxious. I couldn't eat. I was really depressed. I was really hopeless. So like also not great in a physical way. Um, and I'm and looking back, the reason I thought the sky was so big back then and I was overwhelmed by the like massiveness of the sky was because I had such little outdoor time that I forgot how big the sky was. I was so weak from not eating for two weeks that when we went to go get some Gatorade at a gas station, I passed out on the ground and my friend came and she's like, Linda, like, like, get up. Like 
we need to go. And so I did. And I was like, well, I'm out of the hospital. I can eat now. My life is going to just return back to normal, hopefully. And then that's when I went to my apartment and found that my bags were packed and my partner didn't want to see me, didn't feel comfortable seeing me. So had you I, seen, had you seen your partner or talked to your partner at all throughout the last like six weeks or whatever it was? Yeah. So okay. all I didn't have access to my phone. So what I did was all my important contacts, I writ, wrote down on a piece of paper really quick before they took my phone away. And that piece of paper was like, all that I had as far as how to communicate with my friends. So while I was there, I had people come and visit me. Um, not my partner though. I had other friends that were really lovely and came to visit me and like, let me cry with them <laughs> and stuff. So I hadn't seen my partner since, since the first time I was handcuffed and dragged out of my apartment. So I was like, well, fuck, where do I go? And I was like, well, I guess I have to stay at my parents' house. And so I did. And I told my parents that I'd been sick, but I feel better. And um, something was wrong with the apartment or I was fighting with Aaron and I needed to stay there for, I don't know how long, a couple of weeks. So I did. So it was also kind of good for me that my parents didn't know because it meant that they acted like things were normal. And for me, that normalcy was really comforting because they weren't like, oh my gosh, like, are you okay? Like, do you need to eat? Like, why are you so skinny? You lost like 10 pounds. Like you haven't been this light since high school. Like, are you okay? Like, do you need this? Do you need that? Like, I didn't need that. I needed people to just be normal so I could fit into that normal. And things were not normal. Like for a long time, my partner had asked for space and I was terrified, like terrified of what would happen. And eventually we patched things up. I chose to go back to the mental hospital voluntarily for a intensive outpatient program, which was way different. They let you keep your clothes. They actually taught you DBT skills. You actually have therapy that helps. You're allowed to like have your possessions with you. And that really, really really helped me. Like I remember bringing my ukulele every day and playing in the stairwell on break, on lunch break, um, and just being like happy. And eventually like my partner and I have worked through like oodles and oodles and oodles of stuff. We both have therapists. We both like, holy cow, put so much fucking work in (laughs) and we're in a really good space and nothing like that has ever happened again, but not to say it wasn't terrible. And the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because I had no idea what it was like for people who get taken away by police for a mental health issue. I had no idea. And I think that if people knew what could happen, then the system could possibly change. But coming out of the mental health system, I was in a way worse place. I remember the first time, the first time I took a shower out of the hospital, I freaked out because like the silver bar on my shower at home reminded me of the silver bar of the shower at the hospital and the showers at the hospital are different because they don't have any, like, like the water just comes out of the ceiling. It's, it doesn't have any like uh, pipes because it, they don't have anything that you could possibly self-harm with. So everything looks different. So I was like traumatized by my stay at the hospital for a long time. And most of my work has been undoing that trauma that I like experienced. Yeah, I guess that's like all the main points. (laughs) I mean, it literally sounds like, I mean, anybody would get some sort of post-traumatic stress from that experience, right? Like that is not healing. I'm so glad though, that you, you know, were able to get through that. Like, again, like the the whole, your whole story is a story of survival really at the end of the day, um, get through that and then voluntarily go back is, I I wanted to heal. Like I wanted to get better so bad. And the reason that I wanted, the reason why I chose to go back is because before I left, two 
to social workers or mental health care professionals to therapists had come and they were dressed in normal clothes, which is different because everyone had scrubs, right? Dressed in normal clothes. And they were like, so I really want to invite you to this program. This is what we learn. It's group therapy. You can leave whenever you want. You can come in. You don't have to sleep there. Like it's freedom. And we really think that you could do it. And the other reason why I chose to go back is because my doctor had put down another diagnosis along with my BPD. And I asked him about it. I was like, well, I don't really think I have this other one. Like, what, why did you put that down? And he said, well, you know, like basically to have further treatment, it's easier to have a dual diagnosis because of insurance purposes, which meant wink, wink, you don't have the second one. I'm putting it down so the insurance company will pay for you to have treatment. And I was like, okay. So I just, I just remember thinking I want to get better. Like I can't come back here. I can't be the person I was leading up to this. Like I want to get better. If there's tools to get better, like I'm going to eat it all up. I just wanted so bad to get better and it didn't happen as fast as I want it it to. And I still have like times that are obviously really terrible, but things have been mostly better since then. You're here and you survived. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, like really, because like at multiple points, I, I didn't want to, like, I think the bravest thing I ever did was to keep living when I, when I didn't want to. And I don't think a lot of humans can like relate to that. I think a lot of people have like a strong survival instinct. And I always thought that was really weird because I didn't, I would always watch zombie movies and, and like, you know, the main characters like fighting for their life. And I remember thinking, I think I would just get eaten and have it be over with. And I think I was like really strange because of those thoughts. And I'm like, Oh, they might be also BBD thoughts. Yeah. I I have uh, those thoughts too. (laughs) I'm the first motherfucking one to become a zombie when that shit happens. Take me. Yeah. And not because it's like I'm suicidal or anything, but it's just obviously one, that's never going to happen. And two, sometimes life is just so daunting, right? It is just so daunting to wake up and go through another day. And we have to put so much fucking energy into trying to do it in a way that is semi-functional. Yeah. Like life is just, life is just unfair and it's just hard sometimes and other times it's beautiful and it's sunny and there's ladybugs and there's things to climb and there's cartwheels to do and it's like beautiful and sometimes it's like well fuck partner's mad maybe you like knocked over a piece of furniture maybe you broke a glass maybe you're exhibiting behaviors like you're ashamed to tell people about like sometimes it's just hard sometimes it's lovely And I think with BPD, since our range of emotions is so augmented, you get the super awesome, beautiful ladybug star ridden cartwheel days. And then you get like the, like, like the depths of hopelessness days. And if someone were to, if a wizard came to me and said, Hey, I can take away your BPD. Do you want to? I don't know if I would say yes or no, because I don't want to lose the like sparkle pony glitter love life kind of like feelings. But I also don't want to sit in the depths of hopelessness. You know, I don't want to know that that time can happen again in in my life because my life is going to go on for quite some time and I'm sure other hard periods will come. But you have the, first of all, I totally agree with you about not wanting to take my BPD away because I, I value the excitement that I have about things too okay, much. Okay, well, listen, she she might be on Team Sarah, though. So she said she's not sure if she would. Okay, Lori. Like, it changes day by day. Yeah. I have to but, but that's what I was going to say is like, you have, <laughs> I'm just going to ignore what Sarah said. <laughs> I'm trying to hoard all of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, no, but what, <laughs> but yes, also that. Um, but like the important part is a, you have the skills now because you did DBT. You've, you've survived like the hardest thing you're going to have to survive. And hopefully, and you have the skills that you can use to move forward. And you, one of those skills is remembering that today, this is the worst I have 
ever felt and there is no hope and then going, okay, I'm going to use wise mind and go, you know what? I felt like this last week. And then I had a nap and the next day I woke up and I was super excited because whatever the fuck you're excited about, I could go rock climbing today. I could do 16 cartwheels. I, you know, I can't do any of those things, but <laughs> like 20 pound weighted pull-ups and feel like a badass. Yeah. Oh my Lord. <laughs> like I can't even think about doing a pull-up without getting stressed. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's, it's the waves. That's why all of Sarah and I, our logos waves, our album cover is waves. We talk about waves, waves all the time because it, those highs are worth the lows. It's funny that you talk about your logo because the theme song that you guys used from Halsey, I really vibed with that song before I knew I had BPD. And now that I know I have BPD, the song really makes sense on a level that like accurately expresses the emotions of someone with BPD. So every time I hear that song, I'm like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) I have low key never listened to that song. That's a Sarah thing. Not that's not a Lori thing. Oh, it's a great song. I should though. It's I very, should. yeah, it's very good. Halsey has bipolar disorder, but um, yeah, I was it's really a very good song. BPD, but she does not. <laughs> yeah, no, she has. And I mean, frankly, the two are not all that different, except for that people with bipolar disorder go weeks in one emotional state, and we go seven and a half seconds before it starts. And over. remember that a lot of the time it's misdiagnosed. So you never know. That's how I feel kind of about Demi Lovato. I feel like she probably could meet either diagnosis to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. But anyways, that's a whole other story. Not Um, There is like a piece of art writing that I did about this time. Um, Mm -hmm. That's like a great synopsis and I was going to read it. And then if it fits in great. And if it doesn't, I totally don't care, but I was just going to read it to like have it. And then you guys could either choose to use it or choose to not, and it won't hurt my feelings either way. So I'm just yeah, let's end on please. That. Yeah, let's end on that. Read it. Okay, go for it. The story is called Diagnosis. Everyone has a superpower. But until pushed to the extreme, most superpowers lay dormant under the surface of our normal coping skills. They come out when only absolutely necessary. Angry and wild after a suicide attempt, forced to face her worst nightmare, handcuffed and in the back of a cop car is where our heroine discovers her superpower. With survival instinct kicking in and a very clear choice to make, panic or reclaim normalcy, superpowers are found. Humor. Trapped in a plexiglass cage, our heroine first exercises her superpower by creating positive conversation with her captor. She asks about his life, learns about a common interest in athletics, makes him smile and laugh, severely decreasing his bad guy points, and introduces him as her special friend to her new captors, hospital staff. With outlandish statements about the comfort and quality of care given, oh, the super attractive hospital gown for me, you shouldn't have purple is so in this season. And look, it's open in the back. Please don't be intimidated by my amazing back muscles. Her superpower takes full effect, and soon her captors are smiling, joking, guards down. Her powers changed. Her powers changed them from intimidating figures to non-threatening comrades. Audience members of an entertaining show, me, successfully eliminating the threat, them, neutralizing the danger. And it works. Our heroine faced many more battles as the story goes on. Nights alone, panic attacks, ankle shackles, complete boredom, and the torture of 24-7 TV and fluorescent lights, confusion, malpractice, complete unorganization, complete loss of freedom, and cruel and unusual punishment involving adult divers. Still, our heroine persevered. And then the diagnosis. Along with a sparkling personality and an infectious enthusiasm for life, our heroine learns that the curse came with uh, the curse that came with her blessing, borderline personality disorder. Blessed with happiness and a lifetime of childlike joy, she's also cursed with crushing despair and debilitating hopelessness. Humor couldn't break this curse. Furthermore, her most stable and long-lasting support system, her partner disappears, leaving her with only the words, 
I'm not sure I'm committed to us. I need space. Don't contact me. Move out. Repeating in her head. Completely defeated, our heroine barely surviving, she discovers her second superpower, her vast friend group. Stay tuned in to see how she preserves amidst soul-crushing challenges and discovery of her new superpowers and the effects of her blessing and curse. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.